0: This morning we'll be reading uh, God's Word, Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, which would be chapter or page 1237 in your pew Bible if you're using one. Hear the word of the Lord. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Most of y'all know before moving to North Carolina about four years ago now, our family lived in Louisiana for 11 years. And we became familiar with Louisiana culture in a lot of different ways. I imagine you have some familiarity with it too, at least enough to know that Louisiana is known primarily for three things these days. Of course, the famous Cajun cooking, duck dynasty, and voodoo magic. Especially if you've ever visited a place like Bourbon Street in New Orleans, you've been introduced, I expect, to the fortune tellers and voodoo queens that line up on the street selling their predictions for money, offering to remove curses from you, and so forth. Now, most of us in this room probably don't believe in voodoo magic, but despite that skepticism, we might be just a little bit alarmed if we were to go back to our homes today and find on our doorstep a little cloth doll dressed in pieces of our own garments with the lock of our own hair attached to it and with nails or stick pins stuck all through its body, my guess is we would be a little bit creeped out. So creeped out that we would be very tempted to rush to our computer and log in and pay thirty nine ninety five dollars 95 to purchase Voodoo Mama's Cursed Voodoo Doll Disposal Kit. It comes with a blessed candle, Salt, holy water, and a spell to break all spells. And if we just happen to be a little bit extra superstitious, we might want to kick in another $44.95 for Voodoo Mama's Uncrossing and Jinx Removal Bath, which promises that if you mix those salts with the water and bathe in it for 13 days straight, it will erase any curse against you. But Most of us wouldn't be very bothered by that little voodoo doll. We might wonder if that piercing headache had anything to do with that stick pin through the forehead. But most of us would recognize that voodoo mama is nothing other than a scam artist making a buck off of superstitious tourists in New Orleans with no real power to do us any harm. But what if I were to tell you that there are people that we know, maybe even some in this very room, who are under a curse that is very, very real? And this curse was invoked not by some scam artist on Bourbon Street, but by the most powerful being in the universe who with his mere breath created the world and with his mere whisper can destroy it in an instant. And what if I told you that there is nothing that you can do to break this curse? There's no curse removal spell you can purchase. There's no mineral bath that will wash it away. There is nothing you can do to escape this curse. Curse. There is only one person in the world who can remove the curse from you, but if he is to do that, he demands of you your faith, your surrender, your life, your very soul. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul explains that because all of us are sinners who have defied the law of God, we are under God's curse, a curse that we cannot break, but that Jesus Christ suffered the curse that our sins deserve in our place so that we can escape it when we put our faith in him as the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. There are four primary truths that the Apostle Paul emphasizes in this passage truth number one no one can be righteous before God by attempting to keep the law. no one can be righteous before God by attempting to keep the law verse 11 says now it is clear that We could translate it, it is obvious, it is evident, it is as plain as the nose on your face that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. Now, the word justified is a term that Paul pulls out of the law court. It's the verb that was used in the ancient world to speak of passing down the innocence verdict on a defendant who appeared before a judge. At the end of the trial, if the defendant were innocent, the judge would slam down his gavel and he would pronounce the defendant not guilty. No penalty would be imposed upon him for he had been declared innocent. And Paul's point is no one will be declared innocent by the heavenly judge on judgment day because of their efforts to keep the law. Such is an absolute impossibility because none of us have lived up to the law's full demands. And Paul stresses that when he goes on in verse 10 to quote from Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything that is written in the book of the law. As Paul emphasizes the impossibility of living up to the law's demands, notice first of all his use of that verb continue. If you want to be saved by the law, you've got to continue to do it. The point is that we have to fulfill the law consistently, persistently, without fail. He's saying it's not enough if we want to be saved by the law to just keep the law some of the time or even most of the time if you want to be saved by the law you've got to keep it all of the time unfailingly then he also dist- uh, stressed the lofty demands of the law by his insertion of the word everything in his quote from Deuteronomy 27:26 Now, the word everything isn't in the Hebrew text of this passage in the Old Testament. Is Paul distorting Scripture by inserting it, though? Absolutely not. He sees that it is implied by the context of this passage because it is emphasized repeatedly in Deuteronomy 27 that we are to keep all of the law. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 27.1, Keep every command I am giving you today. Deuteronomy 28.1, says that the blessings of the law are contingent on the people being careful to follow all his commands. Deuteronomy 28, 15 warns that the curses will befall the nation of Israel if, quote, you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all. All his commandments and all his statutes. Now, did you hear that repetition of the word all again and again and again? So, when Paul says you're under the curse of God if you fail to continue to do everything written in the book of the law, he's only spelling out the implications of the surrounding context. And his point is that if you want to be saved by the law, you don't have to just keep some of its commands or even most of its commands. You must keep every single one of the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law. That's right. There are many more than just 10 Paul wants his readers to understand that God has a very different standard of judgment than a lot of people assume. It's commonly assumed today if you're just a pretty good person or at least a little bit better than the guy who lives across the street, your soul is okay and your salvation is guaranteed. That's actually a view of salvation that was alive and well back in Paul's days. The rabbis in Paul's time referred to what they called salvation according to the majority of works. What that meant was that God graded on the curve. And if you kept most of the law most of the time, that is, if you were over 50% righteous, your soul was safe. Uh, One famous rabbi named Akiva liked to describe God as a heavenly accountant who had an enormous ledger, accounting book. And he said that every time a person sinned, the heavenly accountant recorded that sin as a debit, a debt on the debit side of his ledger. And every time a person did a good deed, it would be recorded on the credit side of the ledger. And the rabbi said that on the day of judgment, the heavenly accountant was going to balance the books. And if we have more credits than debits, more good deeds than bad, we'd go to heaven. But if we had more debits than credits, more bad deeds than good, we would go to hell. That's the view of salvation that we hear all around us even now. For eight years, I had an administrative position at a college in Louisiana, and part of my role was to survey our incoming freshmen at this Christian college to see how well they actually understood the gospel. And question 26 on our exam said this, God declares sinners to be righteous, that is, he justifies them, in final judgment if a they have done their best to live morally. B, the correct response, their guilt was transferred to Jesus and his righteousness was transferred to them. That's the gospel answer. Or C, they have lived according to the Ten Commandments. Out of the over 1,000 students that we surveyed, 98% of whom claimed to be Christians, 40% said that they expected to be declared righteous by God on judgment day because they had done their best to live morally or because they had kept the Ten Commandments. Now, that should alarm us because that is the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul says here. He makes it very clear that God's standard for our lives is not to just be pretty righteous some of the time, or even mostly righteous most of the time, it is to be entirely righteous all of the time to keep God's law unfailingly. God does not grave on the curve. Because of his holiness and because of his righteousness, he cannot tolerate any sin in us. And every way in which we defy God's law deserves his eternal punishment. That's why the brother of our Lord said in James 2.10, If you keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, one point, you are guilty of breaking it all. James' point is that since God's standard for our life is perfect obedience to the law, it doesn't really matter in terms of our eternal destiny whether we have broken one commandment or a billion commandments. We have fallen beneath the standard, and we are unworthy to enjoy eternal life with God. Truth number two. Paul says, those who fail to keep God's law perfectly are under God's curse. Those who fail to keep God's law perfectly are under God's curse. Verse 10 again, cursed is everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law. Any who do not perfectly fulfill God's law 100% of the time are under his condemnation and deserving of his eternal punishment. Now, when Paul uses the language of curse here, he's specifically referring to the curse that God threatened as a result of breaking the covenant back in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. You might remember that when the children of Israel were crossing the Jordan River to enter the promised land, God commanded that half of the twelve tribes go on Mount Gerizim, and from there they were to shout all of the blessings that God's people would enjoy if they kept his law. But the other half of the tribes were to go to Mount Ebal, and from there, they were to shout the curses that would befall God's people if they failed to keep his law. Those are the very curses that Paul is referring to in Galatians 3. And those curses are horrifying. Because of our limited time this morning, I can't read for you all of the curses, but I am going to take just a few minutes to read some excerpts of Deuteronomy 28 so that you can see what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. Moses began in 15 If you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes that I am giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city, you'll be cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed, your descendants will be cursed. The land's produce, the young of your herds, the newborn of your flocks will be cursed. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish because of the wickedness of your actions and abandoning me. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has exterminated you from the land that you are entering to possess. The Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. These will pursue you until you perish. Your corpses will be food for all the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the land with no one to scare them away. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, tumors, a festering rash, and scabies from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and mental confusion, so that at noon you will grope as a blind man gropes in the dark. You will not be successful in anything that you do. You will only be oppressed and robbed continually, with no one to help you. You'll become engaged to a woman, but another man will rape her. Your sons and daughters will be given to another people while your eyes grow weary looking for them every day, but you will be powerless to do anything to help them. A people you do not know will eat your land's produce and everything you have labored for. You will only be oppressed and crushed continually. You will be driven mad by the horrors that you see. The Lord will afflict you with painful and incurable boils on your knees and thighs from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. All these curses will come, pursue, and overtake you until you are destroyed, since you did not obey the Lord your God and keep the commands and statutes he gave you. Because you didn't serve the Lord your God with joy and a cheerful heart, even though you had an abundance of everything, you will serve your enemies the Lord your God will send against you in famine, thirst, nakedness, and a lack of everything. He will place an iron yoke around your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation from far away, from the ends of the earth, to swoop down on you like an eagle, a nation whose language you don't understand, a ruthless nation, showing no respect for the old, not sparing the young. They will besiege you within all your walls and gates that you trust in, come toppling down throughout your land. They will besiege you within all your gates throughout the land the Lord your God has given you. You will become so hungry that you eat your own children, the flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you during the siege and hardship that the enemy imposes upon you. You will find no peace among those nations. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despondent spirit. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You will be in dread night and day, never certain of survival. In the morning, you will say, oh, if it were only evening. And in the evening, you will say, oh, if it were only morning, because of the dread that you will have in your heart and because of the horrors that you see. And that's only a small portion of the curses that God pronounces against those who fail to keep all of his law all of the time i think probably the most horrifying element of these curses is the one mentioned in deuteronomy 28:46 where the scripture says these curses will be a sign and wonder against you and your descendants forever forever In other words, this is a nightmare that you never wake up from. These are horrors from which you can never escape. The scripture says that the people who are suffering these curses want relief and they say, oh, I can't wait till morning comes, but morning comes and there is no relief. In the morning they say, oh, I can't wait until night comes, but the night comes and there is no escape. And it's clear that the Eternal curses that were pronounced in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are but a brief description of the horrors of hell that every person will endure forever and ever and ever if they fail to keep God's law and are trusting obedience to the law for their salvation. But then there is truth number three. Paul gives us good news. He explains that Jesus rescued us from this curse by bearing our curse in our place. Paul insists that it's no accident that of all the ways that Jesus could have died, he was executed by crucifixion. It was a horrifying way of death. One that I think is worthy of detailed description. When Paul mentions death by crucifixion to his readers, everybody knew exactly what he was talking about. They had witnessed it with their own eyes. But 2,000 years removed and many miles removed from these events, I'm afraid that we have little understanding of the horrible suffering that crucifixion actually entailed. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived during the time of Christ and the Apostle Paul, actually described Roman crucifixion, which he had witnessed many times with his own eyes, as the most wretched of all ways of dying. He spoke well. Crucifixion was a wretched way of dying, first of all, because of the physical torments that it entailed. The Romans would always scourge a person before they were crucified formally. Roman scourging involved taking a whip called a flagellum in Latin that had a long wooden handle and then several straps of leather that came out from it and then using it to beat a man, often until dead. And these strips of leather would have done enough damage on the tender flesh of a man's shoulders and back and chest and stomach. But to make the torture even more brutal, the Romans would lace these strands of leather with metal, glass, and bone weights so that each strand would be of tiny little hammers pounding and bruising the flesh and often those weights of bone metal glass would be sharpened and even barbed so that they would not only pound and bruise but they would lacerate and they would cling to the flesh so that when the slave administering the torture ripped back on the scourge to free it and administer another blow the flesh would be lacerated until it hung down literally in ribbons. Josephus tells us of one man he saw scourged by the Romans who was beaten so brutally that his spine and his ribcage was exposed. And you could literally see his vital organs pumping underneath the mangled flesh. He describes another man who was scourged so brutally that he was literally disemboweled beneath the lash. You have sometimes been told that the Romans limited their scourging to... 39 blows, 40 minus 1. But that's actually mistaken. As I've explained before in another message, the Jews limited their synagogue floggings to the 39 blows. But the Romans imposed no limit on the number of blows that could be administered in their flogging. And many people were beaten to death beneath this Roman lash After enduring this kind of torture, it's no shock at all that Christ was not able to carry the crossbeam of his cross all the way to the place of execution, Golgotha, and had to be assisted by Simon of Serena. The shoulders on which that rough-hewn cross were imposed would have been a mangled mess, it would have caused excruciating pain and Jesus' enormous loss of blood would have already brought him to the very brink of death. But after the administration of the Roman scourging, the victim would then be taken and they would be nailed to the cross. They would often be nailed to the cross before the cross was lifted upright and then dropped into the post hole that would keep it upright upright. So after the nails had been driven, there would be that agonizing thrust against the nails. Many times that alone could put someone into the kind of shock that would be fatal. We often see Christ in Christian art nailed to the cross in what we might even call a a dignified fashion, but that's simply not the way it happened. The Romans loved to taunt and mock the victims of crucifixion by nailing them to crosses in all kinds of contorted positions. That's why when Simon Peter was later crucified, he was crucified upside down. We have found the archaeological remains of a victim of crucifixion in Jerusalem, a slave named Yohanan. An archaeologist believe, that when Yohanan was nailed to the cross, they actually twisted this leg in that direction, then put the other leg over it so that the heels overlap and drove a single spike between both heel bones. Practice standing in that position when you get home. It's painful to do after more than a few minutes without any nails at all. But the point of that contorted position was to make sure that there was nothing the crucified victim could do to relieve himself of the pressure on the spikes and alleviate his pain. We've often seen in Christian art, Jesus crucified atop a very tall cross where he is lifted high above the bystanders. But that's not the way Roman crucifixion was done. Typically, the Roman crosses were very, very short. So short that the victim of crucifixion was in easy reach of the bystanders and they could spit in his face, they could slap him, they could punch him and otherwise abuse them. Or the ancient Romans write, even the wild dogs that roamed the streets of the ancient world could gnaw on their shins while they gasped for their final breaths. And all this while, insects and sometimes even birds of prey were feasting on their flesh, and they, nailed to the cross, were unable to shoo them away. All the while, they were baking beneath the hot rays of the Palestinian Son, oh yes, Josephus was right. Crucifixion was, without any rival, the most wretched of all ways of dying. So wretched that even the bloodthirsty Romans who amused themselves by going into the Roman arena and watching gladiators battle one another to the death or even unleashing wild animals against Christians and seeing them mangled and torn apart while they cheered and applauded. Even the bloodthirsty Romans had no stomach for crucifixion. Cicero, writing only a brief time before the time of Christ, says... That the Romans were so disturbed by the very thought of crucifixion that if someone spoke the word stalros cross, in their presence, they would clasp their hands over their ears. Or if they saw the word cross written on a piece of parchment, they would clasp their hands over their eyes. They didn't even want the thought of crucifixion to enter their minds. And this is the brutal, horrific torture that our Savior endured in our behalf. But as horrifying as all of the physical tortures associated with crucifixion actually were, it exceeds anything that words can possibly describe. Because the Jews recognized that in addition to the physical torment involved in crucifixion, there was an even more frightening spiritual dimension. You see, the Old Testament law said in Deuteronomy 21:23, "Cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree." The Old Testament law said that if you had committed some horrible crime and you had to be executed by the congregation of Israel, that after the execution, your corpse was to be suspended from a stake or a tree, some piece of wood, until nightfall. And only then were you to be taken down and buried. And the explanation was, cursed is everyone who is hung upon a tree. And the Jews recognized that there was such a great resemblance between Roman crucifixion and this treatment of the corpse of the cursed criminal in Old Testament times that those who died by the Roman cross were under the curse of God. Probably that very thought was the big hindrance to Saul of Tarsus becoming a Christian in the first place. As a Jew who understood the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, I believe that Saul expected the Messiah, the king chosen by God to reign over his people, was to be the most blessed of all human beings But Jesus had died by crucifixion, Saul reasoned. That meant he was under the curse of God. And that ruled out for Paul the very possibility that Jesus could be the Messiah. You see, a crucified Messiah was a contradiction in terms. It just didn't compute. Because a person who was crucified was under the curse of God And there was no way to Paul's mind that the Messiah could die under a divine curse. But then, Saul meets the Lord Jesus in his resurrection glory on the road to Damascus. And he sees the very Shekinah glory of God emanating from the body of Jesus and recognizes that he is the Son of God, God in human form, just as he claimed. And he suddenly struggles, how can this be? If Jesus is truly the Messiah, the Son of God, how could he die under God's curse? And then he remembers Isaiah 53, That prophecy about the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, that says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace was imposed upon him. By his scourgings, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone into his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And suddenly Paul understood. Yes, Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, who should have been blessed above all people. But yes, he had died under the curse of God. But the curse that he suffered was not one that he deserved. Out of all humanity, he was the only one who ever kept all God's law all the time. No, when he suffered the curse, he was bearing the penalty that we deserve in our place, so that we can escape it. The Lord Jesus himself made it clear that he died under the curse of God in his crucifixion, did he not? As he agonizes on the cross, he lifts his eyes to heaven and he quotes the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people have thought that Jesus was delirious from his blood loss, the shock that resulted from the pain, that he was confused, that he couldn't possibly, as the Son of God, be forsaken by the Father. But oh no, Christ knew exactly what he was saying. And his quotation of the Old Testament prophecy is absolutely true. Christ did die forsaken by the Father, abandoned by the Father, alienated from the Father, cursed by the Father because he was bearing the guilt and penalty for our sin in our place so that we could escape it. It was an unthinkable moment in human history. When Josh was a little boy, four years old, we were missionaries in Bucharest, Romania. Our first two years in Romania went very well, very smoothly, but the last year we kept facing one difficulty after another. Uh, Rocks and beer bottles thrown at the kids while they played, tires slashed. I think I've mentioned before the instrument that was put in the wheel to cause the blowout. And once when Julie and Josh were at the market, a man burned Josh in the face with a cigarette. Josh believed intentionally. He actually says the man stood back and laughed while he screamed. And because of that and a number of different things the family experienced, uh, there was a lot of emotional trauma, uh, especially for Josh. Josh. And he went from being a happy-go-lucky little guy to someone who was just overwhelmed with anxiety. And in that period, we would put him to bed around eight or nine, like most kids his age would go to bed. And we would go to bed soon after. But I would lay in bed with my eyes open, just waiting, because I knew that it would only be a brief period of time before he would have one of those nightmares and he would wake up. Scared out of his mind, screaming. And at the first sound of that voice, I wanted to leap out of bed and rush to him and scoop him up in my arms and say, It's okay, son. Your dad's here. You were safe. Because that is what fathers do. But while our Savior, died on the cross. He lifts his eyes to the Father and he cries out from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the heavens were silent. Though it broke the heart of the Father, though it broke the heart of the Son, The father had to turn his back on Jesus, forsake Jesus, and yes, even curse his own son because of his love for us. Because the only hope that any of us would ever escape the curse of the law depended on that very moment. Finally, Paul gives us one last truth. he says that we escape the curse and are declared righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. because Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, because he bore our guilt, our punishment our Our curse, he offers salvation to us as a free gift. We don't work for it, earn it, deserve it. We don't acquire it by our efforts at being good. It is a free gift that God gives to us simply in response to our faith. That's why Paul says in verse 11, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. And to be honest with you, the Greek text changes that word order. It's different from our English translations. It actually says, the righteous by faith will live. Do you see the difference? The righteous will live by faith could give you the impression that if we believe we're going to be good people and God's going to reward us with life as a result of that righteousness. But Paul said, no, the righteous by faith will live. His point was, we believe God... We are pronounced not guilty because of what Jesus did on the cross, even though we are indeed guilty, and we enjoy eternal life as a consequence of that gracious declaration. Wow. Paul will refer to that faith again in chapter 3, verse 14, when he says the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. What is this faith that is required to receive the spirit of God to escape the curse And have the promise of the forgiveness of sin. Well, it's the very same faith that Paul wrote about in Galatians 2.20. When he said, I am crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. Christ Jesus lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live, get this, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the kind of faith that Paul is referring to here in Galatians 3. It's faith, first of all, in the Son of God. We recognize that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed king, but he is far, far more than a mere human king. He is the Son of God. He is deity incarnate, God in human flesh, the very glory of God embodied in a man. And, of course, one of the purposes of Jesus' miraculous ministry was to demonstrate that deity. Again and again, Jesus did things that only God can do to show us that he is God. He walked on the water. He raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. He controlled the weather. He did things that the Old Testament clearly says only Jehovah can do to show that he is the embodiment of Jehovah. Not only must we believe that Jesus is the son of God, we must believe Paul says that he loves us. If we know our guilt before a holy God, that one should be harder to swallow than the first. If we know how wretched and sinful And miserable we are in the eyes of the perfect Holy one. We should expect nothing from him, but his spite and his hatred that Paul says, the son of God loves us. And he demonstrated that when he Paul says, gave himself for us. This is the sacrificial language of one bearing the wrath of the holy God in another's place so that they can escape that wrath. Paul says that's the essence of the Christian faith, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who loves, yes, even us, and who gave himself for us completely in an atoning sacrifice that provided our forgiveness And the promise of blessed eternity. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Do you have that faith? Or are you one of those who thought. If I can just try a little bit harder. If I can just do a little more good. If I can just fulfill a few more commandments. I will somehow pass the scrutiny of the heavenly judge and squeak into heaven. I hope that you'll recognize that if we're to be saved by the law, we've got to keep all the law all the time. None of us can, only Christ did. And because we don't keep all the law all the time, we are under God's curse, a curse that we cannot escape on our own that Jesus bore the curse by his death on the cross so that we could escape it. Trust him and him only for your salvation right now. No longer say, I believe I'll go to heaven because I... Keep the commandments. I live a moral life. I was baptized. I walk down it I'll go to church. I, I, I. All that indicates is that you are trusting yourself rather than Christ for your salvation. And that is utterly hopeless. Instead, put all of your hope in Christ, all of your trust in Christ, the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you.